to um, know that God's in control as we start out into this new year and today to remember that our hopes in Christ and who he is and no matter what comes before us in the new year with Christ it's all going to be okay. Would you open your Bibles with me or follow along on your device or it's up on the screen but I would encourage you to turn in a Bible, the Pew Bible, page 262. Uh, we're going to be reading just the first eight verses in 1 Samuel as we begin a new series in this book. I love 1 Samuel, uh, but I love every book that I'm studying or preaching out of at the moment. But this is a great study. So would you join me as we read together 1 Samuel chapter 1, reading the first eight verses. There was a certain man from Ramaliath, a Zuphite from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of Jehoam, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuph, an Ephraimite. He had two wives, one who was called Hannah and the other Peninnah. Peninnah had children, but Hannah had none. Year after year, this man went up from his town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh, where Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were priests of the Lord. Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife Peninnah and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, and the Lord had closed her womb. And because the Lord had closed her womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. This went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. Elkanah, her husband, would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? Let's bow together in prayer. Father in God, take your word this truth that you want us to know and to hear and begin to use it to shape us into a beautiful bride, your people, bring us to faith, bring us to more faith, lead us to holiness, we pray. Through the Spirit of God, we ask this for your honor and glory today together as we worship you, as we're ready to listen and hear from you today. We pray this in our great Savior's name, the Lord Jesus. Amen. The children of Israel were stuck. I don't think I'm on. The green light's on. Anyway, <clears throat> sorry. <laughs> the children of Israel were stuck. I'm going to be stuck here, and I don't like that. <laughs> <laughs> the children of Israel were stuck. They were stuck in a pattern of revival of uh, great spiritual victories and prosperity because God was blessing them, and then there would be this downturn to idolatry and turning away from the Lord and ignoring him and being oppressed by the neighboring nations around them. And it went on again and again. 
and it repeated itself through history, in Israel's history. And you know what? It, it repeats itself in my life, in our lives, I think, too, doesn't it? We have these great upticks and swings and closeness to God, and then we kind of drift away and we come back. And, and hopefully as we're slowly creeping upward and onward to glory, we get a little closer to God, but there's this up and down. It's the sawtooth hopefully going up toward glory. They were stuck. Do you ever feel stuck? Stuck in a job that's more frustrating than fulfilling? Stuck with bad life choices that you made last week or a month ago or a decade ago or 20 years ago? Do you ever feel stuck? Stuck with your personality and genetic makeup? We won't go there. <laughs> stuck with your family? Stuck in Havertown? stuck in this world. God is always working. He's always working. His plan of redemption, which means to rescue or to deliver, is never failing, but sometimes it feels like it's on hold. When's the new heaven and the new earth going to get here, God? We, we get anxious for it stuck in a holding pattern, but be assured that God is at work. He's going to give his people victory. He's helping, his victory. He's helping us. I'm stuck here. God's grace is great, and he keeps his promises. He's a saving God. He's moving people. Yes, you, if you're a child of God, he's move, moving you to everlasting glory to something that's so amazing and awesome that we cannot forget it. You know what's amazing? There's probably someone here today that's so near to that kingdom, and yet you're going to miss it because you're investing in the temporary over what's grand and glorious and eternal. First Samuel helps us understand and see to make the better choice. There's all kinds of people in First Samuel. There's great people of faith. There's wise and foolish people, there's helpful people, and nothing but troubling people in the book of Samuel. People of faith and people who had none, people who are just like us, people that are just like the ones that we meet every day when we go to work, when we do our business from day to day, the people that live next door. And 1 Samuel helps us see that God is at work, working out his good plans among people who believe in him and people who don't. God is doing his work. He was doing it in Samuel's day, and he's doing it in ours. And God has chosen to tell us this part, these people, this time in history, in his redemption story, so that we learn what God is doing, that he's still rescuing, that he's still delivering. And when God rescues a person saves them from their sin and the eternal consequences of it. He directs them to a new path that's taking them to new places. And yeah, it's a new year. And it's a fresh start. And God is taking you and me, if we believe in him, to paradise. So why bother studying 1 Samuel? Because it's rich. Rich with spiritual lessons for God's people. Knowing 1 Samuel's place in God's story is going to open up our eyes to what God is doing in our world now. 
The Holy Spirit, I pray, will use this to give birth to faith in your life if you don't have faith. I pray that 1 Samuel will help build up my personal faith and our corporate faith in God and to see that he's at work and he's leading us somewhere good. I pray that this book study will help us pursue holiness. So let's dig in. God's story of redemption from Genesis to Revelation. Many of you are familiar with it, but God's story of redemption, his rescue of his people, his deliverance begins in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, when he says, speaking to the serpent, to the devil, he was saying, I'm going to crush your head. There's going to be a seed that comes from the woman. He's going to crush your head. He's going to deliver his people. And then in Genesis chapter 12, uh, he told Abraham that God, uh, that God had a plan that through Abraham's line, through his descendants, there was going to be blessings to all the world. And we know that blessing was a person, Jesus Christ, the promised one. In Isaiah chapter 9, we just looked at those verses, thought about them this Christmas, uh, that the, this Savior was going to be called the Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, and that he was going to rule the nations with righteousness and justice. In the book of Isaiah chapter 53, we read there, that this promised Savior was going to take sin on himself. In Isaiah chapter 53, we read this. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities, and the punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray, and each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. We just sang about that. In John chapter 10, Jesus himself, that promised Savior, said, I'm the good shepherd, and I know my sheep, and my sheep know me. And just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. The reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord, and I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. And he did. I jump to Revelation chapter 5. Speaking of Jesus, the people in heaven... The creatures in heaven, the angels in heaven, the saints in heaven say this. You are worthy to take the scroll, to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased men for God and every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. Again, just a reminder, the story of redemption Jesus is the one who's worthy to open the scroll. He's the one that can close history because he created history. The world is his. It was made by him and for him. So he's the one who purchased it, and he's the one, the only one who can open the scroll and bring the final chapter to close in the book of history, in, the, in God's plan for history. And then in Revelation 19, 
I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice, he judges and makes war. Just remember that God's not only a God of love, but he's a God of war when it comes war against sin and death and evil and wickedness. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns, and he has a name written on him that no one knows but himself, and he is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. And out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty on his robe and on his thigh. He has his name written, King of King and Lord of Lords. Whirlwind Tour. God's redemption story. Where's 1 Samuel fit in all this? I have a timeline. We're about the same distance from Jesus' birth and life and death as Abraham was 2,000 years before. Isn't that a kind of a cool picture? Maybe you didn't realize that, but for me, it's like, whoa, okay. Abraham lived 2,000 years before Jesus lived. I'm living around 2,000 years afterwards. That doesn't mean Jesus is coming back tomorrow, but it means that it's closer than it was. Have you ever thought about how many people from your family have lived back to the time of Jesus? My dad was born in 1925. If I live like six more years, 2025 is going to be here. That means two generations will have covered 100 years, a century. And if I had healthy relatives all the way back, 40 people, go back just 40 people, they were living during Jesus' time. 80 people goes back to the time of Abraham. If we were really strong and healthy, you only need 40 people. If they each lived 100 years, they get back to the time of Abraham. Kind of just interesting to think about time. It seems like so long ago, and yet it's really so near. Well, Samuel's story takes place about 3,000 years ago, and Canaan, or the promised land, was, um, was free. Egypt, the world power at the time, was not so strong. So they had no influence in the promised land. Assyria and Babylon, they were these kingdoms that were going to be on the rise, but they weren't on the scene yet. So Israel only had to deal with the, with the nations around them. So that was challenge enough. So that's just a little bit of the time frame. But I just wanted to refer to our place in God's redemption story. Waiting for Jesus to return. Just like Abraham had to wait for God to keep his promise. Just like David had to wait for God to keep his promise. Just like Deborah and Ruth and Samuel and all those saints from of old. They had to wait for God to work out his promise. We have the exact same task. Called on to wait and trusting faith for God to do what he says he's going to do. And in the meantime, we wrestle with our faithlessness. We wrestle with our selfishness. We wrestle with jumping ahead of God and his plans. But we're called to, on the other hand, to trust and strive. To be living and loving one another in such a way that it reveals that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the, and the Savior that the apostles 
proclaim that Jesus is the Christ, that we, the, we believe in him, the one who proved it through his life and miracles and resurrection from the dead, that he is the Christ, we have to trust him and serve him and follow him. Like Hannah and Samuel and Saul and David were called to believe in the Lord and live for him alone. We have a part in this redemption story, just like Samuel did. Do you believe that? They're so important, right? David and Samuel and Hannah and these people, but they were just ordinary people with faith in God, who God used to do amazing things. And God is at work today in our lives. And it might not be their story, but it's our story. And he wants to use us to bring glory to him, just like these people. Can I ask you this morning, are you a part of God's redemption story? Have you jumped in in belief? And if you haven't, what's keeping you from loving and serving God more? than you did last year? Why are you hesitating to surrender your life to him all your soul, with all your soul and all your strength? Well, we get to learn what it looks like to do that or not to do that in the book of 1 Samuel. There are a lot of treasures here. If you have your Bibles open to 1 Samuel, would you turn back to Deuteronomy chapter 11? I'd like to read a few verses from there because this is the backstory to 1 Samuel. Deuteronomy chapter 11, I've highlighted on the screen verses 22 through 25, but I'd like to read a few more verses. I'm going to start at verse 13 of chapter 11 of Deuteronomy. So if you faithfully obey the commands I am giving you today to love the Lord your God and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul, then I will send rain on your land in its season, both autumn and spring rain, so that you may gather in your grain new wine and oil. I will provide grass in the fields of your cattle, and you will eat and be satisfied. Be careful, or you will be enticed to turn away and worship other gods and bow down to them. Then the Lord's anger will burn against you, and he will shut the heavens so that it will not rain, and the ground will yield no produce, and you will soon perish from the good land. The Lord is giving you. Skipping down to verse 22. If you carefully observe all these commands I am giving you to follow, to love the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways and to hold fast to him, then the Lord will drive out these nations before you and you will dispose nations larger and stronger than you. Every place where you set your foot will be yours. Your territory will extend from the desert to Lebanon and from the Euphrates rivers to the western sea. No man will be able to stand against you. The Lord your God, as he has promised you, will put the terror and the fear of you on the whole land, wherever you go. Why read Deuteronomy? Because Joshua, the book of Joshua, because the book of Judges, because 1 and 2 Samuel and 1 and 2 Kings is a commentary on how Israel did with this command, with this words of warning and encouragement from God. It's like their report card. We get to see how they failed and we get to see their victories. And we're so much like them. <laughs> it's wonderful and frustrating to be just like them. 
We have the same kind of passions. We worry about our families. We want prosperity. We want the economy to be good. We want to feel safe in our borders. We struggle to trust God's word in our daily lives, in the moment by moment. And the only reason we make it is because God does not treat us as our sins deserves, because he's gracious and compassionate like a good father is. The book of 1 Samuel is part of the former prophets. The Hebrews knew Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings as the former prophets. They're history books, but there's so much more than that. They're called the prophets because it's God's perspective on, on their obedience. It's God's critique of the nation of Israel and all the individuals in it. It's just like Jesus's review of the book of Revelation. I have an ABAB thing. Maybe you never thought about that, but it just helps us understand 1 Samuel. Joshua is A. That was the nation of Israel on the upswing, on the uptick. Joshua was a conqueror and they took over the land and they were obedient. That covers one generation. The book of Judges comes after Joshua, it's B. It's when they started to have the ups and downs, the repeated cycles of idolatry, and then they would turn from, from that to spiritual revival and, and renewal. They would trust God. God would send a judge to help them and deliver them. They would go up and down, and they repeated it. It was bumpy times politically, economically, and spiritually, up and down. Samuel which used to just be one book in the Hebrew Bible. They split it into two because it's easier to carry two books around, two scrolls and one big one. It's an A. Two generations, David and Solomon, when the kingdom was established, and David's like another Joshua, a hero, a conqueror, a leader. The people followed, and he led the people to the Lord. And then the book of Kings, First and Second Kings, which was one book as well, as many generations. And again, it's that bumpy ride like the book of Judges, up and down. If the king was a good king, things went well. If he was trusting in God and leading the people, if the king was an idolater or unfaithful, then the nation went down and the people would turn to idolatry. And finally, there was a collapse of the whole kingdom when the Babylon, Babylonians came. People, themes, and lessons for life from 1 Samuel. We kind of know its place in God's story. There are three main characters that we're going to be studying. Samuel, Saul, and David. And Samuel's the judge and the prophet. And we're told about Samuel's birth, but not the king's birth. Do you know why? Because Samuel was God's spokesman. The kings were just stewards. God was the king. The earthly kings were just to do God's bidding. The prophets were God's primary mouthpiece, so Samuel gets first press. And there's so many other important characters that we're going to be studying. Some of the important themes that we're going to be learning about from Samuel is this, that God reigns absolutely, that God is king. I can reject that notion, but it doesn't change reality. We're going to find out what happens when we work with God. 
Does anything good happen when we humbly accept God's sovereign rule over our lives? What do you think? Does faith really overcome the world? What are the consequences when we believe? What happens when we believe that God is a sovereign king? How does it change your life? We're going to see what happens in Hannah's life next week. What happens when we work against God? What happens when we resist God's will, when we go our own way, when we take life, life's, our life into our own hands and disregard our creator? Well, we're going to study a lot of people's lives that did just that. People like Hophni and Phinehas. People like King Saul. People like Nabal and so many others. There are consequences that make life difficult when we resist God's will. And then there's victory. It does not matter at all what my attitude is toward God as to God's ultimate victory. I can love God, be indifferent toward God, or hate God but it doesn't change the reality of what's going to happen in God's story of redemption. So it does not matter what my attitude is toward God as to God's ultimate victory. God's going to win. But it does matter what my attitude is toward God about my ultimate destiny. And we're going to see that in the book of Samuel. In 1 Samuel, we're going to see how each person that we meet either accepted or rejected God's will, believing in God or not believing in God, obeying him or disobeying him, and what happened. You can work with God or you can work against God. And either way, there are consequences. Some are for blessing and some are for cursing. But know this, that God's will is going to be done. Victory comes through the yoke of God's grace. G. Campbell Morgan said it this way, the triumph of a person is the triumph of God over them. The triumph of a person, the triumph of your life is that God triumphs over you. What did Jesus have to say about that? Well, in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 9, Jesus said, whoever finds his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. In chapter 11 in Matthew, Jesus said, Come to me, all you who are weak and burdened, weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So in 1 Samuel, we get to see what it means to take Jesus' yoke on our life. We're going to see what it's like for Hannah to take God's yoke on her life and what that means. And we're going to see what it means to resist taking Jesus' yoke on our life and what happens when we resist, when we go our own way. Hophni and Phinehas and King Saul and Nabal, 
are some of the examples of that. Have you taken Jesus' yoke on you? Ordinary people and God's bigger plans. Will you turn back with me or return to 1 Samuel? I want to read the first two verses. 1 Samuel chapter 1. There was a certain man from Ramathaim, a Zophite from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zoph, an Ephraimite. Don't you love it when I read those verses and mess up the words? I practice and practice. He had two wives, one who was called Hannah and the other Peninnah. Peninnah had children, but Hannah had none. In God's redemption story, isn't it interesting that in this part of it, he introduces us to these people And why does he do that? Because they're portraits of humanity. They're portraits of you and me. We can relate to these people. And through these people's lives, we get to meet God and walk close to him. And God's plans, you see, are done by his power. But it's through people. And blessing comes when it's people who surrender, humbly surrender to him. There was a certain man whose name was Elkanah. (laughs) What a way to start a story. There was a certain man, fill in your name. A certain woman, fill in your name. He had two wives. Well, I don't want to talk about that right now. We'll do that next week. Peninnah had children, and Hannah had none. I feel the tension already in this story. It's dramatic. This would make a great miniseries. Year after year, this man went up to worship and sacrifice. And one of the wives seemed to be blessed because she had many children, and the other wife seemed to be cursed. But we get to see that God was working. In this ordinary, everyday struggle with not having children and wanting children in the culture of the time and where it put Hannah. And God was working to bring blessing not only to her life, but to a nation's life, to the world's life. It was all part of God's redemption story. What have we learned? What have I learned? I'm going to impose what I learned on you. God's plan of redemption, of rescue and deliverance recorded for us in his word is a flowing story through history. And I want you to realize that it's still happening today, right now, in our lives. Whether it's individually and then when we're together collectively, it's happening. Do you see it? Are you aware? Are you with God? Are you in step with God? Or are you resisting God? He doesn't want you to be stuck. He wants you to take his yoke on you and free you so you can follow him and learn and become a blessing to the nations. 
We are a part of that story as much as Elkanah is and Hannah is and Peninnah is and Hophni and Phinehas is and all the rest of the people we're going to meet in the book. God presses into service not only the obedient, but he presses into service to have his will accomplished to the disobedient. But the disobedient only get to share in God's glorious wrath. Those who humbly believe in him will share in the joy of his victory. Which one will you choose? I ask you today, if your story was in print the way Elkanah's is and Hannah's is and King Saul's and King David's is, etc., etc., what would the story be? What would God's commentary be on your life? Are you with him or working against him? Like the book of Revelation where Jesus kind of graded the seven churches in chapters two and three of Revelation. What would your report card say? The pioneering missionary to China, Hudson Taylor, said this, God uses men and women who are weak and feeble enough to lean on him. So where are you leaning? Let's pray. Father and God, I ask you today to teach us from all these stories that we're going to be studying in Samuel that we will be weak and feeble, so weak and feeble that we lean only on you. Our great God and Savior, I ask you to fill us with your spirit so that we not only believe in you, but we trust you enough to follow you without hesitation to take your yoke on us. Lord God, I ask you to take your word and root it deeply in our hearts to change us and mold us and shape us into a beautiful people, a beautiful bride, ready to meet our returning God and Savior who's going to be completing his story of rescue and deliverance soon. Oh, Lord, we ask you to do this for your honor and glory, and we know you will accomplish it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.